today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter 28, The Hustlers League Championship, A Reflection. Beyond a doubt, the black team moved with the idea, energy, effort, and precision that we would be the champions of the junior division of the Hustlers League. Ricky Santiago was so confident and certain that he prepared 24 karat gold championship rings for each of the 11 members of the team. The rings had never been mentioned at the start of the league with the other awards being offered to the top players. None of us expected them and they were not ordinary rings that could be purchased from a catalog a retailer or a trophy shop. Coach Vega, one afternoon after another rigorous practice, let the whole team walk, but held me back. Panama Black, the team captain, Machete, and each team member, minus Dolo, were used to Vega holding me back and then requiring me to put in extra time, extra laps, extra suicides, extra layups, extra squats, and extra dribbling and handling exercises as though he was trying to force me to repay the team for the time and the practices I had missed while I was traveling. A few times some of my teammates stayed back to watch him overwork me. Although my teammates showed me love and welcomed me back, I knew they were secretly satisfied that I was being punished and trained twice as hard as they were. I didn't mind. On that particular afternoon, the coach held me back. Something out of the ordinary occurred. Meet my boss tomorrow outside a junior's restaurant at noon, Vega told me. For what, I asked. Don't ask. Just do it. On the corner of Flatbush and Fulton, I waited. In my sweats, with my ball in my grip as usual, I didn't see him. It was 12-12, caught off guard and slipping. I smiled when I finally recognized he had been there all along, seated in a ride that was the opposite of any whip I ever saw him push or even lean on. It was a 1972 Oldsmobile Delta 88. No rims, just wheels, not blacked out and customized, but with the windows spray painted black like it was done by an amateur artist or a small child. His driver's side window didn't ease down. It staggered, revealing that the driver was rolling it down manually. Not you, I said, not as in asking him if he was himself, but verifying if he was the same man I knew pushing that piece of shit car where he was seated in the driver's position. Get in, he said. I did. There's a time and a place for everything, he said, once I was seated on the ugly black velvet cushioned seats. He pulled off. Moments later, on a fucked up block in Bed-Stuy, he pulled over, then parked in front of an abandoned building. First stop, he said, and we both got out. Hold up, I told him. This ain't a ballpark. It's not the address you gave me for your vending machine delivery, either. Looks like there's no business between you and me right here, he said. I said. He smiled. 
You gave your word, he said. Remind me, I said, but I was 100% doubt. You owe me a game of chess on a broken down board in a broken down place. Now, if you want to back out, just let me know, he said calmly in his casual denim wear. And I noted it was my first time seeing him out of Gucci loafers or Tods and into Air Force Ones. He's already playing chess, I thought to myself. Between his jalopy and his clothes, this fucked up block and the broke down building he chose, it was his method of intimidation and mind control. That had to be the reason he didn't notify me in advance that today was game day. I'm sure he gave himself the time to prepare and sharpen his game and his psyche. I had only managed to get in one session of practice with my man, Marty Bookbinder. I had phoned him, placed an order for a book and a map, and then invited him to meet me in a Queen's Cafe I had carefully chosen one evening to deliver my purchase and play a couple of games of chess. He accepted eagerly. Let's go, I told him. We walked. Everything with this dude is a test, I thought. Reverse aromatherapy. The place stunk of mildew and dog shit and some other odor I didn't recognize. Thought, if he had to go through all of this, maybe his chess game is no good. And then I warned myself not to underestimate him because maybe that was part of what he wanted me to do in his setup. On a cardboard dollar store board, on a rickety card table, in an empty room without walls, we both sat on cheap metal folding chairs. I could hear footsteps and movements above and below me. He needs me to feel uncomfortable and surrounded and filled with fear of the unknown. (laughs) I had no fear. The championship games between the two top teams in the junior league were a week away. He had a vested interest in not doing anything to damage his investment. (sighs) I took some deep breaths. On the tabletop, he flipped the hourglass and it was on. He had the white pieces, the first move. I was silent while he thought, and even as he advanced his pawn, after a few minutes of play, I realized that he would say something each time it was my turn, just to throw me off. Think on it, or careful now, or are you sure? On my simplest moves, he would even comment, you give your pawns up too easy. You should appreciate them more, I checked how he would maneuver to hold on to his pawns, even allowing one move where he sacrificed his knight to save one of them. Ultimately, I had lost each of my pawns except one, but held on to my queen, one knight, two bishops, and one rook. Half an hour later, I ate up his rook using my bishop. He devoured my bishop using his queen, but then... His king was left open, except for the two pawns guarding him. I advanced my black knight and said, check. Soon as he got ready to move his pawn to gobble up my knight, he realized that once he did, his king would be exposed to checkmate. 
He chose to move his king to the left instead to avoid my knight, which was of course limited to L-shaped movements. I advanced my one remaining rook from the back of my side of the board straight all the way to the back of Santiago's side of the board. Check, I said. As soon as he realized that the only way out for him was to use his queen to eat my rook and save his king, but that if he did, he would lose his queen with my follow-up move, he leaned back. He was paused so long that even the sand had run out of his favor. Why don't you call, he asked me. Take your time, I said, just to mess with his head and flip the hourglass back over to emphasize it. He then moved his queen to gobble my rook. My one remaining bishop ate his queen. Game over, he said, but it wasn't rightfully over. He still had moves he could make. You have moves open. Why quit, I asked, using the word quit to push him to play on to the finish either way. Don't you know, he asked me. The game is always over once a player loses his queen. But one of your three pawns could become your queen, I said. But why was I helping my opponent? A pawn can only pretend to be a queen, but only a queen is a queen, he said. It sounded to me like this was his philosophy on life. You want to talk about life, or do you want to play the game, I baited him. Our first game ended in a stalemate. Rematch, I asked him. He accepted and we began, but at a certain point, I purposely let him have it. He looked at me hard. Sloppy move, he said. That's unlike you. Your move was all I responded. I had decided I would lose the game, but in the real world, I would play my position and somehow win in some other way. I was grateful to him for a few reasons. That was enough. He used the opening, dominated in the game, until he called. Checkmate. Second stop, he said, after his Oldsmobile plowed down the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, not cruising, but with great effort. Now, we were in another beat-up neighborhood located in Queens, the opposite of the area I lived in, about to head into the side entrance of a brown brick three-story commercial building on a block of small businesses where any customer might think it was too risky to shop. We got out. I didn't ask any more questions. I knew he knew by then what I was game for and what I wasn't. The front door was solid steel, no window or placard stating what they were selling or what a customer could expect. He pressed a buzzer. The loud buzz responded with an even louder buzzer. Santiago opened the then unlocked door and we were one step inside, facing a gold gate from the floor to ceiling like cell bars that even a slim body couldn't slide between. It was locked, and there was only a dim light, which revealed a set of stairs. The wall to the right, lined with tall stalks of a real sugar cane. Without our pressing a buzzer, a buzz sounded and the gate opened. We walked down. Each step was painted with a clean, wide, 
gold stripe. In the basement, nothing was renovated or plush. The floor was made of some kind of rock, and there was a huge tree stump, metal benches, and tables. My man Khan, Santiago said, introducing me to a brown-skinned man who had a three-foot-long ponytail, longer than a horse's, and beyond his backside, it almost concealed the long, thin scar that ran across the back of his neck that confirmed that someone had once tried to cut his head off. He survived murder. His hair was not manly, but his mannerisms were. His voice was rough, but he sang his words to an unfamiliar rhythm, similar to Jamaican, but not Jamaican, I could tell. He had to see the confusion in me as my mind tried to place him as having originated from either Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, or Kashmir. His name was Khan, and that is definitely a Muslim name. Guyana Indian, he said without me asking, and he pointed to the small model flag of Guyana he had posted on a drink mixing stick and mounted on one side of his tables. But we grow up rough like the African. He pushed his fist forward and bumped knuckles with Santiago. When he withdrew his hand, I saw his fingers were worn and ragged, and some of his fingertips burnt. Looked like he had either tried to set sear off his fingertips, or he had strangled a few men who all had thick, muscular necks. Maybe one of them was the one who had tried to chop off his head. He's one of my champions, Santiago told him, referring to me. I'm going to need 11 rings, 24 karat dark gold. Size his finger, Santiago told him. Khan makes jewelry with the same kind of precision and passion that you play ball, he said to me. The Indian pulled from his jeans, buckle, loop, a set of about 30 steel rings and chose one out of all of them. It fit exactly on my finger. See what I mean? Santiago asked me. Precision. Then he reached into his denim shirt and pulled out a Ziploc bag. My mind prepared for the worst because of what Amir's father had once mentioned to us about the Hustlers League. I started suspecting and speculating that it was cocaine or crack in the Ziploc, but it wasn't. That's 15 ounces of gold, 425.24 grams, Santiago said, handing it to Khan. I checked it out. It looked like the light brown sugar my Uma used in some recipes. Got it from your guy in the DD, Santiago said to him. Ira the Jew or from Levi, Khan asked. Ira, he's the more trustworthy of the two, Santiago said. I knew then that D.D. stood for Diamond District. Of course, I had been there in many of the shops, wholesalers, and retailers in Midtown, Manhattan. And of course, I recalled eagerly that Santiago had an apartment on the east end of that money block that led straight to the Diamond District. Khan took the bag and hit an intercom button. A young girl about Naja's age quietly stepped down the stairs and without words rolled up Khan's ponytail and pinned it in place with a pure gold, uniquely crafted barrette that looked 
like it came from some royal family's treasure chest. It fit over the bulk of the wrapped up ponytail and held it in position on his head like a crown. She handed him a red bandana, then turned and left. Khan went to a work table that had a black stone top. He opened Santiago's Ziploc of pure gold and spread a thin line of it onto the stone. He dropped a few drops of a solution onto the gold, saying only two words, nitric acid. The line of gold did not dissolve in the acid. Then he chose another bottle and dropped another solution, saying nitric acid plus hydrochloric acid. The gold disappeared. Genuine. Yes, man, he declared. Santiago nodded his head in approval. Khan was a chemist, a genius scientist in an urban laboratory customized especially for him. Unlike any jeweler I had ever encountered, Khan made his jewels by hand from scratch, like a baker making a pineapple upside down cake. Taking inventory now, in his space was a gas tank and an oxygen tank and a huge container plastered with a red warning sticker that said sulfuric acid. There seemed to be enough items down there that one tiny mistake, the whole building would explode and be leveled. Santiago observed me staring at the sulfuric acid and said suddenly, It's lethal. Burn the skin right off of your body in 20 seconds or less. Some stupid, stuck-up kid tried to rush this spot. That acid got thrown in his face, gave him a whole new look and a whole new outlook. That was before my man Khan got the steel door and gates installed with the camera and the buzzer locks. There was a hammer, no, a mallet, that was lying on the tree stump. I picked it up as Khan worked his skill at his station. The handle was solid, and the head was heavy as barbells, and even heavier than an axe. In the corner of the room were some machines that looked like they came from the 17th century, with hand cranks and spinning metal wheels. He had metal saws and heavy sharp shears and every version of pliers some thick enough to trim bushes or to pull fingers out of their sockets, and some tiny enough to pick up the tiniest of diamonds. All of his tools could be converted into deadly weapons. I was imagining that he probably could make some wicked knives better than a blacksmith. I envisioned designing a diamond-handled gold sword for my second wife, a weapon worthy of her caliber. Or maybe something more creative, tiny swords that could be worn as hair ornaments to hold her thick bun in place. When she needed them as a weapon, she could just pull it from her hair and fire it into the eye of her enemy. The intensity of the fire from his blowtorch captured my attention. Don't look upon it directly. You can blind yourself, he warned. Almost 2,000 degrees, he said, and I was amazed to see that the gold changed from powder to liquid gold, then poured inside of two molds that each sat inside two identical clay dishes filled with sand. He pressed the two clay dishes together. The liquid gold solidified into the shape of a ring. 
he dipped it into some solution. An hour and a half later, he handed me my gold championship ring. It was warm in my hand. He took it back and went to one of the antique machines, flipped a switch, and buffed and polished the ring lovely on a spinning cylinder lined with heavy brushes. This is the prototype. Me can do enough things to make it one of a kind. If you don't like it, I touch it and turn it back to gold liquid in three seconds. Maybe you want to put a diamond on that? He asked Santiago. Santiago reached into his denim shirt again and pulled out a smaller Ziploc half filled with diamonds. Nice idea. I have the gems here, but these are for my queen. After you finish my ring orders, I'll order a separate piece for the wife. Just hit me up when the other ten rings are ready. First, let me show you my championship ring design and engraving so you can finish them off nice, perfectly. They hovered over a paper that Santiago pulled out of his pocket with some designs drawn in pencil. I was captivated. I thought it was incredible that this guy from Guyana, who felt like an everyday Brooklyn black man and was styled and street in his manner, but looked like an Indian straight from India, could do everything from start to finish. He could cook and mold and bang and shape and design and engrave the gold. He could create by hand the diamond settings and was even a diamond setter. He couldn't have been 30 years old yet, but he was a master of his trade. How could I not think so? I saw the gold powder in its rawest form and later held the handcrafted 24 karat dark gold ring in my palm after watching him closely through every step, movement, and process. Besides, he had photos mounted of beautiful bangles and earrings and necklaces. Did you make all of the jewels in your photos, I asked him. Everything come from my shop is original, handmade. You supply the gold or diamonds of your choice, I make it one of a kind. What about you, Santiago turned and asked me. What about me, I said. You came into some paper, want to place an order of your own? How did you learn the trade, I asked Khan, if you don't mind, I added. I worked for some Indians that owned a shop in Guyana. They treated me like a little nigga. I was their runner, running from workstation to workstation. In one area, they made bangles. In the other, rings. In the other, necklaces. In the other, they made settings for diamonds. And in the other, they set diamonds. I played dumb. The pay was dirt, yet the gold was a noble metal, and the jewels I was handling were all precious, and the Indian owner was filthy rich. I lived in the tenement he owned. I didn't complain, kept my eyes open, and my mouth closed, learned everything, but me act like I know nothing. Seven years later, me opened my own shop so I could take care of my mother. How much for a bar of gold, I asked. Depends on the week. Then Santiago and Khan spent the next half hour teaching me the weight system about penny weights and ounces and grams, carats and points on diamonds. It felt good. Any man 
not breaking down and humiliating the next man, but teaching him something priceless that he can use to his benefit for a lifetime is the feeling of a father to me. Once I tell you this, my man, you can trust that you can show up at his shop, order what you want directly. He won't fuck with your gold or switch out your gems. There's a whole lot of goldsmiths and jewelers who will. He can make anything you can afford, anything. He made that chessboard for me. The real board, he said, referring to the 24-karat gold board that no one would forget after seeing it once. The one with the princess-cut diamond perimeter and the detailed, handcrafted diamond and gold chess pieces. And without my recommendation, you couldn't get past his street I'm sorry, his steel door. This is a no advertisement by word of VIP mouth only operation. Without revealing my reasons or relations, I ordered two bars of gold valued at $5,000 each, an heirloom for my twins, inshallah. At the same time, I decided right there in that basement that as I earned, I would set aside stacks and convert them into gold bars to back up my paper money and secure my family's financial future. Even though I was already in Queens, I let Santiago drop me back in Brooklyn on Fulton Avenue. I would hop on the train That's just my way. In the train car, I thought about how much I appreciated him. At the same time, I thought about his attempts at mind control. He held onto the ring Khan made, but he made sure to place it in my hand without words or instructions to let me know I had to be pivotal in securing the black team championship. The ring and allowing me to see what he did not allow others to see was the incentive. Of course I understood the importance. Maybe he had another wager on the game, a bet so deep that if we won it for him, the price of 15 ounces of gold and the $25,000 for MVP and the $10,000 for the five starting champions would seem like nothing to him. Before I had climbed out of his humorous Oldsmobile, Santiago said to me, I know you let me win the rematch, but what you don't know is that I allowed you to let me win. It showed me your character. You're a man who is capable of keeping your ego in check and not showing your best hand when there's nothing in it for you. Great strategy awesome timing. I like that. The next round will play for real after your tournament ends and I receive your machine shipment. At that time, there will be no courtesies or debts between us. I appreciated that Santiago didn't find it necessary to warn me not to tell the team about the rings or not to discuss what I'd seen and where we went. I took that as the beginning of a trust. He did say to me, however, the same way Khan tested the gold to confirm that it's genuine. Men 
test men for the same reasons. July 4th, in Dua Die Bedstop, Brooklyn on Kingston Ave and Hergamas Street, the championship game. The stands were full. The park was packed, no standing room. Kicks covered every stretch of cement. Kids climbed the fence, reached the top, and stayed squatting right there. Their friends were riddled in between all the way down to the bottom. Fingers clenching the fence wiring and faces pressed to see in. It was only 11 a.m., but the hood was wide awake, cleaned up nice and fresh dressed for their holiday. Full families were out in anticipation of seeing their sons battle for the highest prize that wasn't money, but recognition. The red team entered the same way they had entered every game. A team of individuals only connected by the fact that they each wore something red. They didn't have uniforms. However, that day, their coach, who was the opposite of Coach Vega, had gotten his shit together and had outfitted his top five players in red and white Nike Dunks and the rest in red Converse weapons. His squad, known for being wildly disorganized and explosive, were also unpredictable. They were the only team in the league where one of their players turned around in the heat of a game and punched a member of his own team in the face for not passing the ball to him at the exact time he was open and had the shot. They were known for playing football, basketball, fouling and tackling, blocking and knocking opponents out. They'd rather take the personal or team foul, technical or otherwise, as long as they won the game. But that style got them through the playoffs and straight into the championship game as the only team that could face the undefeated black team. Navy blue Jordans with a metallic swoosh hugged all 10 pairs of feet on the black team. Black starter jerseys with navy blue numbers and all black shorts. That's how we were doing it. The crowd was on our shit for our style. The girls mad excited and their mamas more excited. In the intensity of the adrenaline rush, I was calm. I had sent my whole family to Martha's Vineyard. It wasn't my original plan, but my second wife had said some words that moved me. I also had figured out that I needed it to be only me and my ball and the hoop in my mind. This is what we worked for. Think of everything you sacrificed. Time, sweat, summer jobs, and even coochie to bring you to this moment. Go out there and make me look good, Coach Baker said, his signature line. Team owner Ricky Santiago was too charged to sit. He stood up front in his white tailored leisure suit and white crocodile Gucci loafers and Gucci sunglasses, surrounded by a few men who couldn't fuck with his look. On the blacktop, 
the captain and starting red team guard Amir Nickerson was my enemy and my best friend. He had fire in his eyes and the power of the charismatic underdog. He riled up the crowd to cheer for him, then turned to his teammates and threatened them. Familiar with his ways and watching his gestures, I knew. Jump ball, and I have thrown away all friendship and allegiance for the next two hours. Big Mike tapped the ball best. Panama spiked it, threw it to me, and I slam dunked. It was psychological. Vega has said we needed our first two game points to be intimidating, to deflate the Reds' egos. Having watched the Red team during the playoffs, he said they hustled hard, were skilled and physical, but not thinkers. Their ball, the pass was in, and Swift Machete stole it. He dribbled, passed it backward to Big Mike, and he hit it from the foul line. Tighten the fuck up, Amir screamed at his teammates. He then caught the pass and was dribbling down court. He passed the ball to his forward, tucked in the corner, and he scored the shot. Now they were tightening defense, checking us hard. Amir told the other point guard on his team, I got him. He pulled up close on me. Hovering, he tried to strip me. I wasn't having it and passed the ball through his legs to Panama. Get on him, Amir told his man to check Panama, but then pushed his man out of the way and leaned on Panama himself. Like this, he told his man, then stripped Panama and was heading back to his hoop. His man ran down long. Amir passed the ball, and from the right corner, they tied the game, four to four. Each step of the way, it was neck and neck. Crazy watching Amir play every position for his team, even center, even though he wasn't tall enough for that. Amir was smacking Panama shots and trying to check me at the same time. As I watched, I plotted to just run him, shake him down till he was out of breath. That's why there's a team. One man can't play every position and shouldn't have to. The first quarter ended 28 to 27. Panama complained that Amir was riding him and we needed to switch it up. Midnight, you and I will play forward position. Give Machete and Jaguar the point guard position for a quarter. Just to confuse them, Big Mike, I need you to smack their balls back like this is volleyball. Don't let them get near the hoop. Machete, you check that crazy red point guard, their captain. Second quarter, Amir went up. Machete smacked his shot. Loose ball. The red team snatched it up. They passed back to Amir. He went up for the shot again, kicked Machete, and sank it. The crowd went wild. The coaches were out of their seats. The referee called the foul. The black team got possession of the ball. Amir's shot didn't count. Machete was tight, but Amir was tight also. Hands in their faces, Amir yelled. Jaguar was dribbling. He cut left, then right, shaking the red man, checking him, and sinking the layup. Amir went to his man and leaned on him. His finger was in his face, and his man pushed him off. Their ball, his man passed it. Amir dribbled, faked the pass. Machete went for the fake. Amir was up in the air unguarded, sank the shot, and elbowed Machete on the way down. The crowd hollered. Machete's eye was fucked up. But the ref called the foul on Machete. 
The crowd was in an uproar. Vega called timeout. Coach and Panama tried to sit Machete down and send in a sub. Machete argued that he was good. Dolo, who somehow crept up to the bench even though he had been missing from all of the practices and playoff games since his blow-up, said, I told y'all niggas you was gonna need me. Look at the score. Y'all only beating them by two. What? I could have done that, he said, and he was wearing a plain black t-shirt, not our team jersey, and a white pair of case fists. Shut the fuck up, Big Mike told Dolo. Yeah, I got your shut the fuck up. Don't even ask me to play until you show me some money, Dolo said. No show, no go. Big Mike lunged toward him. Panama pulled him back. Focus, Vega yelled. He's a nobody. Forget about him. Yeah, I'm a nobody. Forget about me. But y'all five ain't gonna get no burn. Fucking bench bums. Coach rather play a one-eyed point guard than any of you, Dolo shouted. Slide with me and we could work the crowd and get some money in our pockets. He offered the bottom five. But the crowd noise and excitement level was too high. Dolo on edge couldn't grab the spotlight. Amir's team, refreshed from the timeout, came back, doing some kind of crazy dance steps. My mind was divided. I was the ball player who planned on defeating the opposition and the ninjutsu warrior who had a problem with Dolo, the loose cannon from my team. Focus, I told myself. Then I hit long, a three-pointer. I snatched my point guard position back and checked Amir to put a clamp on his 32-point game, which was more than half of the points his team earned. Halftime score was 57 to 54 in our favor. Sweating hard, I was in the black bandana, hustling like my life depended on it. I was on Amir so rough, but we knew each other too well. We were both canceling one another out. Neither him nor me hit any points for six minutes into the third quarter because of the way we blocked, defended, and offended. It gave our teammates the opportunity to score. Amir got his hands on the ball somehow. I stripped him. Then he stripped me. The crowd was on their feet. I was back, checking him. He passed the ball to his man. His man passed the ball to the red center. The red center passed the ball back to Amir. He pumped like he was going up for the shot. I jumped. He darted underneath me and hit the shot from an impossible, awkward angle. Now, everyone was standing. Our ball. Machete was dribbling down court. Amir left his guard over me and pulled up on Machete. They were both in close and talking shit to one another. Fuck it. I'll give you the lane, Amir said to Machete. I'll take it, Machete said, and headed for the layup. Amir stripped him from behind and was on his way back down to his hoop. He passed the ball forward, then ran up full speed before the black team could get, could get back and set up. His man passed him the ball and he laid it up. A herd of girls started calling for him. Romeo Red, Romeo Red, Romeo Red. It seemed like I could see his head swell too big for his neck. That's right, he pumped his fist and banged his chest. Still, the score was 79 to 76, our favor, at the end of the third quarter. Our ball and our bench was suddenly missing four players. I shot a look towards Panama. Panama shot a look towards the bench. 
Bras connected eyes with Panama and me and mouthed Dolo and swiped his hand across his neck. The five starters, including myself, knew we had to be without error to win the game. I also knew we had an off-the-court problem. As I was dribbling down court, I saw Dolo maneuvering through the crowd. Kid had a 22 in his grip and his hand hidden at his side. Half a second away from approaching where Vega and Santiago stood, I stopped and fired the basketball at him, hitting him in the head and causing him to lose balance. The gun hit the floor. The front row crowd stood, saw the gun on the ground and scrambled. Dolo tried to pick it up, but when he reached forward, he got dragged backwards out of the view of the players and the fans. As the rumors spread through the crowd to even the people who saw nothing, some started to make moves like bullets had been fired when they hadn't. Play ball, Amir shouted. The referee threw in another basketball and gave it to the red team to check. He blew the whistle and it was back on. When the crowd cleared, Santiago was still standing, chilling in his white leisure suit. No blood on his crocs or cloth, not even looking over his shoulders one way or another. Dolo was gone, like he had never been there in the first place. End of the fourth quarter, the score was 98 to 95 in our favor. There were 11 seconds remaining on the clock. Amir pulled up for the shot. Big Mike gummed it and forced Amir down. Amir landed on Big Mike's ankle. Big Mike was injured. He howled like a baby, but drew the foul. He couldn't be subbed. Braz doesn't play center. Tara was gone. He shot from the line and missed. Twice. Amir sneered and grabbed the rebound. He passed the ball. His man hit the shot from the corner. It was 98 to 97 in our favor. Seven seconds left on the clock. We checked the ball. I had three reds guarding me and no opening. I bounced down the time clock. Jaguar was open. I passed the ball to him. The three reds flew towards him like flies smelling shit. He saw the tackle coming, jumped, and hit the three-pointer. Game over. The black team won. In the heat of the victory, the crowd flooded the court. The ball players were mixed in the middle. The referees and coaches were all blowing their whistles. The red team lifted Amir onto their shoulders and started a Brooklyn chant. When the crowd was finally pushed back, the red team gave the black team no dap. They wouldn't line up to offer the black team that sportsmanship-like handshake. Instead, their center lit a blunt and started smoking its center court. The red and black team owners came out half court, along with both coaches, Santiago and the red team owner, both dressed to the nines and moneyed men who I had never seen before shook hands with no animosity. Then both coaches shook hands. The emergence of the older men with the clout and the money and control over the purse brought both the crowd and the players to a hush. Amir broke ranks and approached Santiago for a handshake. Santiago raised Amir's hand and said, MVP, the crowd cheered. The red team mobbed Amir. Without a megaphone, Santiago began speaking. The weight of his reputation caused a sudden silence. Without a doubt, this youth right here 
got that Brooklyn struggle, hustle, and fight in his blood. Even though my squad, the black team, earned the victory, the crowd cheered at the mention of our team. I feel good awarding this man the MVP title, Santiago announced. Amir and I didn't acknowledge one another. Like we had agreed for the whole playoffs and championship game, we kept our communication off court. We both played our best game. We both got what we wanted. Amir has said to me when I first returned from Asia, I'll be mad as a motherfucker if you come back after being gone for a month and win MVP. And now he had one. And he was beaming about the bragging rights he had secured. He didn't even know that although he won the purse fair and square, I was never in the running for it. I had disqualified myself. I saw no reason to tell him. Both him and me were up. He was up 25000 for MVP. I was up 10000 for being champion top five. Together, we pulled down $35,000. Divided three ways between Amir, Chris, and me, we were all three up $11,667. That's friendship. Back in my sweats, after our on-the-court celebration, I ducked out. Everybody had to clear out anyway. The adult league was playing on that court in a few hours. And other than Panama's house party jumping off later that same night, nothing was up. The money-getting ceremony was top secret. Each starter trusted that we would get that call from Coach Vega right after the holiday weekend. As Vega put it, you should be glad you don't know where the real celebration takes place and that the money gets handed over after all the hype dies down. Otherwise, you would be a target. This is Brooklyn. Don't sleep. Soon as I took one step towards leaving, Bangs, who was standing in the back of where the crowd wrapped around the black team, began moving in my same direction. I couldn't miss her. She was wearing the bright white tee with navy blue letters that said, Milkshake. She tried to lock eyes with me. I wouldn't let her. Instead, I moved swiftly without looking back. I had to catch the LIRR to Penn Station and the 2.15 p.m. Amtrak train to Massachusetts, then hop on the ferry boat to link back with Uma, my wives and sister. Of course, she followed me. She's a runner, more comfortable running than walking. She stepped onto the LIRR and said, You wasn't running from me, right? I just wanted to see you and talk for a minute. What did I tell you about your clothes, I said. I was doing good for a long time, but you didn't come back, she said. So what happened, I asked. If I was going to do it that way, I was only doing it for you. What's the sense of me dressing the way you like to see me if I can't see you, she said. I just looked at her. Her body was right, but her mind was never ready. You look beautiful to me, superstar, she said. I took off my black sweat jacket and put it on her. She had to cover up. Why milkshake, I asked her. Cause it's thick and sweet like me. And it jiggles a little, she said. I smiled, but not on purpose, just naturally. I didn't want to encourage her. 
yet she was so honest in her misunderstandings about herself. She hugged me. I didn't embrace her. And what do you want the men... And what do you want the men who see that you're thick and sweet and that you jiggle a little to do? I asked her. Oh, they would know even if I didn't have milkshake on my t-shirt. You the only one who don't know, she said. At least you don't act like it. I zipped up my sweat jacket to cover her breasts. How's your daughter? I asked. I'm trying to get her off my titties, but she won't let me, she said. And my joint swelled. I missed you so much, superstar. I see that you miss me too, she giggled. Then she got suddenly serious. I was lonely. No matter who else came around, she paused. My grandmother died. It was so sad, and I didn't want to stay in the house anymore. It was too scary. And even though I got money from her insurance, I'm still feeling kind of... I don't know. She was staring up at me. Where are you living now? I asked her. At my girlfriend's mother's apartment in Fort Greene until my grandmother's house gets sold, she said, sadly. How many males are living in the apartment with you? I asked. She laughed. She doesn't have any brothers. Just her moms and two sisters. Her and me and my daughter. She said, not even mentioning her father because it was automatic that he wasn't there. Oh, and there is another serious thing I have to tell you. And one serious question that I have to ask you, but not here, she said. Then her energy built right back up, and she promised. But I'm going to hurry up now, because if I have my own place, you'll come see me, right? She asked. I didn't say nothing. Wouldn't even look at her. In my head, all I was thinking was, oh, Allah. Thank you.